You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, recording from Washington, D.C. On today's episode, we're going to take our sights back to South Asia and focus a little bit on the broader questions surrounding the China-India relationship, which is something, of course, we've come to on this show quite a bit over the last year, uh, when especially we saw the biggest outburst of violence between the two countries along their disputed border. Um, but today, I'm very delighted to welcome uh, onto the show uh, um, a uh, an India-based analyst who's writing up and actually reading for some time on on Sino-Indian relations. Uh, joining me today is um, Manoj Gail-Ramani. He's a fellow in China studies at the Takshashila Institution uh, in India. His research focuses on Chinese politics, foreign policy, and approaches to new technologies. Manoj, thanks so much for joining me on the show today. Thanks so much, Ankit. Glad to be here. Long time listener, first time speaking here. Terrific. Uh, no, it's it, it's really a delight to include you. And actually, uh, you know, before we get into the discussion today, Manoj, I do want to highlight uh, your Eye on China newsletter, which uh, I've long time, you know, I've been a long time subscriber to, and I find uh, incredibly valuable uh, to uh, keep up to date on on uh, you know on the China India relationship, on China's activities more broadly in the South Asian neighborhood. Uh, I you know I'd highly recommend it for anybody with a busy schedule that's looking for a one-stop shop to sort of pick up on all the details. But Manoj, why don't you uh, you know tell us in your own words uh, you know what exactly you've been trying to do with this newsletter and 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 what motivates you to produce it. Right. So uh, I think this began about four years ago, uh, I think October 2017, just around the 19th Party Congress. And it began as an attempt to just uh, provide, like you said, a one-stop uh, center for anybody who wants to know what's going on in China, uh, to just come here and get a glimpse of what all's happening. It's grown exponentially since then. Um, if you see just the content of the newsletter, it's expanded quite significantly. Um, and increasingly, what I've tried to do is that I've tried to look at more original Chinese resources, primary resources, uh, to understand uh, what's happening in the country and to try and bring that to light uh, with a little bit of analysis for people in India and elsewhere, uh, but also just focus uh, on the India-China relationship and the different dynamics of it. Because often what happens is that in news commentary uh, and news conversations in India, uh, it's the more prickly issues, it's the boundary issue, which takes precedence, uh, but we are not necessarily looking at how the Chinese are talking about uh, India, how they view the relationship. So this is an attempt to try and bring all of those perspectives in one place. Uh, uh, and from my, from my point of view, it was uh, something that I started doing on a weekly basis uh, to expand my understanding of things. Uh, and then as I've done more of it, I've realized that it's uh, not just a useful resource for me on a weekly basis, but also for a lot of people. But it began with a very selfish motive to try and you know, expand my own understanding. Right. No, I mean, uh, definitely, I think, you know, one of the things that uh, I at least appreciate is your inclusion of, um, you know, primary sources uh, in the analysis that you do. I think that's quite rare, at least in my perception of the uh, the China watching community in India to some extent. So it's uh, it's, it's really great, uh, you know, that you're able to put this together. Uh, you know, so, I mean, you have noticed that uh, interest in the relationship with China has grown in India over the past year or so. Is that is that fair to say with the pandemic and and the border situation? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think the interest sort of picked up, particularly after Doklam in 2017. Mm -hmm. That uh, changed the discourse in India. And I, I, I think we have to uh, think that it's the Chinese who've allowed that discourse to change because the way uh, Chinese media and Chinese official uh, organs, whether it's the Ministry of Defense or the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, how they spoke about India during the Doklam uh, crisis, that sort of started shifting perceptions and it started hardening perceptions. And since then, sort of, we've entered into high-profile events, right? There were these informal summits, uh, and then, of course, 
now we've got the pandemic and we've got the tensions in Ladakh. So each year you've had something big as an event which right. has focused public attention. We're starting to get into the meat of the discussion here today about uh, the shifting nature of this relationship between uh, Asia's two largest countries and economies. So I wanted to um, ask you a little bit to just give us a little bit of the situation report right now about where the border situation between India and China stands. Because, uh, you know, I've been, um, I think I've done multiple episodes about this over the last year. We've had sort of very granular reports about, you know, what's going on in the Galwan Valley and Depsang at Gogra and Hot Springs. I'm not asking you to get into sort of the nitty gritty about the actual formations on the ground. But, but, you know, as an outsider, it seems to me that things are really at a standstill and have been for some time. India has made it clear to China that, you know, it sees the relationship improving partly as a result of an improvement at the border. Um, China doesn't seem to share that view. So just tell us a little bit about where things stand between the two right now. Yeah, I think I think that's the sort of, uh, to me, that's the big picture, right? I mean, it's about how each side views the boundary issue. Um, from an Indian point of view, what's happened over the last uh, year or so has been that, uh, you know, 30 odd years of uh, the sort of framework that allowed the relationship between the two sides to grow has been thrown away in, in, a, in a manner of speaking. And what we've seen is that uh, the Chinese side essentially saying that, look, the boundary issue is one part of this larger relationship that we have and you need to put it in that context. Whereas the Indian side is saying that, look, you can't have a normal relationship with such tensions in the boundary, particularly after last year where you've had loss of life uh, on the boundary issue. So I think that that's, uh, to me, that, that in terms of how they both approach it, that's at the heart of the problem. From an Indian perspective, uh, I think the view is that uh, Beijing views the boundary uh, as a flashpoint that can be activated at any point of time to sort of exert pressure, political pressure on any Indian government that may be in power to coerce India. And from that perspective, um, and uh, that's why you're seeing, uh, and this is from an Indian point of view, that, you know, that Beijing is therefore un unwilling to clarify basic things like share your perceptions of where your claims are uh, and uh, how you would want to then sort of go about resolving some of these things. Uh, from uh, Beijing's point of view, it used India's recent sort of infrastructure development along, uh, you know, the boundary region as an escalation, as a shifting of status quo. Uh, and it's therefore sort of retaliating in its point of, from its point of view. Mm -hmm. Of course, this is not something that, you know, New Delhi buys at all. Uh, and given the sort of infrastructure development on the Chinese side, it's sort of a... It's, quite, it's rather hypocritical to say that what India is doing in terms of infrastructure on its side is changing the status quo to necessarily to sort of, you know, doing something that Beijing has not done. Right. So I think that's sort of the broader picture in terms of the two sides. Uh, where things are right now uh, is that, you know, in eastern Ladakh, where the, where the tension sort of began last year, we have, we've had 13 rounds of talks. Uh, we've had some disengagement where troops have stepped back from eyeball to eyeball confrontation in some areas. But, uh, it, you know, there's been no de-escalation. Both sides have brought uh, troops to forward positions and they remain there. Uh, and the conversation is that, you know, if you need to go, you, you need to go back, you need to disengage entirely and you need to go back. And neither side has been able to do that. And that's fundamentally because of trust issues. Uh, and uh, if, from at least from what we understand, Beijing is unwilling to go back. Uh, and I can see why Beijing would be unwilling to go back, right? I mean, if you change the status quo in such a way, you need to at least achieve something uh, strategically if you have to go back. Uh, to me, from a long-term point of view, when I look at what's happened, it's not just about the breakdown of trust, but even if you disengage tomorrow, you know, let's assume that there's a 14th round of talks and you, dis and you agree to disengage from 
all of the areas where you're engaged and you agree to pull back uh, and you go back to sort of your barracks, uh, you will still need to negotiate uh, protocols for engagement in the future. Uh, how will those happen, particularly when infrastructure on both sides has brought you much more frequently into contact with each other, the PLA troops and the Indian troops. So you will need to renegotiate those protocols. You will need to rebuild trust. And all of that is a long-term phenomenon, uh, which is something that both sides had invested in over the last 30 odd years after 1988. Uh, and that's what's broken down. So if you're going to rebuild all of that, it's going to be a long time consuming process, which is going to be fraught with risk. Um, but I don't see uh, there to be willingness uh, from China to sort of do that at, at present. I think the current state suits China in some ways. Right. It keeps yeah. India under pressure. It keeps India focused on the boundary as opposed to the maritime domain. Yeah, no, I think I think that's absolutely right. And I think the permanency of some of the changes that India's made, particularly with regard uh, to its defense posture in the north, uh, is is quite notable, too. Uh, we actually covered this on a, on a recent episode of the podcast, uh, looking at the uh, the Indian Army diverting uh, the one core away from the Pakistan um, border and and the line of control towards the line of actual control with China. Some of these changes, I think, are going to be here for a while. And uh, you know, uh, I think I think you know your point about just a longer term breakdown in trust and at least the perception in India that uh, you know 1990, um, 1988, uh the sort of status quo that was established um, at the you know the long fought establishment of the line of actual control, for instance. Some of those foundational understandings between the two sides uh, have have disintegrated over over the last year. But, you know, um, zooming out a little further, um, you know, comment a little bit, I mean, more generally on how at least India's strategic elites uh, and, you know, here I'd include uh, everybody from. Um, you know, senior officials uh, in in the Modi government, um, bureaucrats, uh, defense bureaucrats, military leaders. Um, how how have their threat perceptions uh, towards China shifted? I mean, India has never fully embraced the notion of China uh, as an adversary. I mean, even with the shadow of 1962 hanging over things and the competitive relationship um, really, I think, having been appreciated for some time. But, you know, it seems to me that uh, the, the adversarial nature of this relationship now has become a lot more apparent. Uh, so so what is your view about how, how threat perceptions have changed? And actually, uh, how has the pandemic affected things in particular? Yeah, I mean, I think that this has been this has been a slow burn. I mean, if you look at uh, when the Modi government first came into power in 2014, uh, there was uh, obviously a posture which was, uh, you know, publicly much tougher in that way. I mean, if you remember the late uh, Indian Foreign Minister Sushma Swaraj meeting with Wang Yi for the first time after the government came into power, and her comment was about, well, will you respect the one China policy, but will you respect the one India policy? Um, so there was that sort of public posture uh, where you were going to take a tougher position. But there was also uh, a lot of anticipation of uh, Modi with the mandate that he had, Modi with the familiarity that he had with China, given that as Chief Minister of Gujarat, he visited the country and he'd done business there. Um, there was a sense that you would see a much more pragmatic relationship. That, uh, over the years, sort of fizzled out very quickly. And from an Indian point of view, what the perception was that uh, there, there was a systematic attempt from Beijing to halt some way or put roadblocks uh, in India's rise internationally, whether that was with regard to the issue of, uh, you know, terrorism with regard to Masood Azhar's listing, whether that was with regard to the nuclear suppliers group and sort of India's uh, entry into the sort of nuclear protocols um, and all of those sorts of things. Uh, so the sense was that there was a systematic effort from Beijing to stymie India's rise. Um, and of course, uh, at the same time, you saw much more intense engagement uh, along the boundary. Um, this what happened in Ladakh last year is just one of 
a string of incidents which have taken place over the last seven, eight years, which uh, have increased in intensity, increased in duration each time some of these things have happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, I think by the time we hit Doklam in 2017, Uh, and the chinese media reaction after doklam and the chinese official reaction by the foreign affairs ministry and the ministry of defense uh, and the fact that the people's daily went back to publishing that uh, september or uh, 1962 oped threatening war uh, all of those sort of had echoes in india of china being fundamentally an actor uh, whose intent could not be trusted right uh, and i think that is something that i think from beijing's point of view is there's, there's, there's a need for reflection in terms of how its own pol- how its own policies have sort of shaped the discourse in india mm-hmm. um, the pandemic of course by the time we got to the pandemic um, you uh, ended up seeing and through the pandemic we've seen that there has been uh, an immense uh, sentiment uh, which is uh, very negative when it comes to in india so whether it's with regard to the origins of the virus whether it's with regard to taiwan's participation in the who uh, whether it's with regard to say china's pandemic diplomacy uh there's been a strong backlash in india there's been strong sort of anger in india and i think that sort of has uh, uh, it's partly uh, you know a product of the nature of the relationship which has sort of got much more competitive over the last 7 8 years but it's also partly the sort of distrust which is settled in the public imagination because if you go back about 15 years ago um you had an indian prime minister talking about turning mumbai into shanghai uh so that you know aspirational lens of you know looking at china's development development and looking at it as a model that you potentially would want to emulate uh, at least in terms of its success that has given away to a completely adversarial perception and i think a lot of it has to do with uh just how chinese policies have changed over the last decade right right well you know so you brought up you know beijing's perspective um and i think i think that's important i mean you know you've done a lot of writing on on xi jinping's leadership tenure uh and and the role of ideology more broadly in xi's china so there's obviously one perspective in china that matters a little bit more than others i think that's fair to say which is uh, you know xi jinping i mean uh, he has really consolidated uh, a more personalistic style of leadership especially in the post 19th party congress era that i think has manifested in not only these tensions we're seeing in india but more generally a muscular chinese foreign policy uh in in the indo-pacific more generally so you know let me ask you a little bit of an unfair question which is uh, you know if if you had to sort of speculate about um you know what she personally believes about the nature of the relationship that china has with india and about india's place in asia i mean what would it be i mean clearly you know i think we've seen a a general sense that china sees india sort of bandwagoning with the western bloc i mean you know we can talk about to what extent that's actually happening in practice but those perceptions do seem to be driving some of china's behavior but you know when it comes to xi uh, and relations with india what's your sense of uh, you know what he might think of all this yeah that's a very really difficult question to answer i mean if i look at uh, what what i read in terms of how uh, you know chinese media and how people's daily and how you know she speeches how they sort of talk about the world uh, my sense is that increasingly uh, uh, his sense his, his you know the conversation is around the world being fundamentally adversarial um, and you know uh, and the external environment fundamentally becoming fundamentally becoming far more difficult for china uh, my sense is that he views uh, india as a specific regional problem as opposed to a and as to much to so probably to much dismay of many indian strategists i think that uh, from the chinese point of view the view of india is of a regional uh, spoiler possibly 
you know, uh, and from Ch I think that sort of also played out in terms of uh, real policy from from Beijing's point of view. Uh, and if you look at India's response to the launch of the Belt and Road in 2017 um, and its criticism of the Belt and Road, uh, I think the sense was that, you know, India was a potential spoiler uh, and it was sort of playing that role. And subsequently, of course, it's hardened the position, the view of India being uh, a, an ally of the West or a quasi ally of the West, if not entirely an ally, uh, and potentially sort of blocking China's uh, expansion into Asia broadly. Uh, you know, uh, th I think that is the sense that sort of prevails. In terms of... Uh, you know, uh, how we've seen Chinese policy, and probably that's the best sort of way to eventually look back at, you know, what thinking might be. Uh, the sense is that uh, there is, a, you know, if you can exert greater pressure, uh, and India is vulnerable to certain kinds of certain kinds of political pressure, given its democratic nature, uh, given the sort of fractured nature of the polity in some way, given social uh, and economic uh, issues that India faces, uh, that if you can exert certain kinds of pressure, you may be able to get much more uh, out of India. You may be able to get much more more concessions out of India, whether that's with regard to Tibet, whether that's with regard to say other issues uh, which the West may be wanting to push back on, but India will be far more reticent. Uh, and for example, if you just look at Xinjiang, uh, India has issued no statement, uh, nothing, no specific stance on Xinjiang, no specific stance on Hong Kong and the changes in Hong Kong. Uh, even on the Taiwan issue, India has been largely silent. So uh, the sense may be that it, India is susceptible to pressure because it has certain pressure points that China can uh, use, but it's not necessarily a strategic rival. It's a regional spoiler uh, which uh, mm -hmm. needs to be coerced, cajoled, pressured that you can uh, that you can contain uh, and you can sort of shape its uh, preferences and choices. Right. My sense is that's how Beijing views India. Yeah, no, and you know, I think um, you know some analysts uh, have called the relationship, uh, you know, a one-sided rivalry, uh, just in terms of at least the perception and the mind space that you know India takes up in China versus the mind space that China takes up in India more generally. And I think, uh, and I think what you're describing is 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 somewhat similar. Um, let's dig in a little bit on on the Taiwan question, right? You briefly mentioned it, uh, and and you know, you're absolutely right that India does keep. A low profile, uh, obviously under, you know, India has its own one China policy, official ties with Beijing, um, a vibrant uh, economic and unofficial relationship with Taiwan, of course. Uh, but one of the most interesting dynamics, uh, at least for me, I mean, watching this from the outside and sort of reading the Indian media and and, and the commentary in India on, on Taiwan, it's just been interesting to see the, the level of energetic support uh, for Taipei uh, among Indian civil society, uh, the press, you know, to the extent where uh, I believe the Chinese uh, spokesperson at the embassy in, in New Delhi, uh, you know, released a statement asking asking the Indian media to respect the Indian government's um, policy uh, towards um, towards Taiwan and uh, and China more generally. So, you know, what's your sense of, uh, you know, continuity and change, I guess, in, in the India-Taiwan relationship. Taiwan is becoming a more um, more of a hot-button issue. The Biden administration in particular uh, is raising Taiwan more frequently with allies and partners, encouraging them to become more outspoken, attempting to multilateralize the Taiwan problem um, in, in general. So do you think, um, you know, New Delhi is, is likely to, um, you know, seriously think about any changes to its Taiwan policy? I'm not talking, of course, about, you know, anything like formal recognition, but short of that, you know, trying to push China's buttons, so to speak, uh, on this issue. Yeah, I think we've seen that happen. I think we've seen uh, New Delhi be a little bit more vocal when it comes to this, although it's not, there haven't been sort of statements issued, uh, you know, and most importantly, like we, 
like in, in terms of the quad summit we didn't see taiwan be part of that statement but uh, i think that there's been much more uh, there's been far greater discourse in india there's been far greater conversation about uh, engaging taiwan there's been far greater talk about uh, you know exchange of students uh, you know technology and that being a critical sort of center of trade between the two countries uh, the possibility of increased taiwanese investments in india so there's been a, a lot more conversation around taiwan than you probably noticed 2 uh, years ago you know and the pandemic has sort of uh, you know galvanized some of this conversation around taiwan at the same time uh, what we've seen is that new delhi has generally been much more quiet uh, whereas the media discourse has been much more active but if you just look back at sort of uh, economic engagement with taiwan and even sort of people to people engagement over the years there's been a gradual increase uh, for many it's not been uh, satisfactory but there has been a, there is there has been an increase our trade today is it about is it about 5 billion dollars a little bit more than 5 billion dollars uh, there are about 2000 indian students uh, studying in taiwan uh, there is more sort of exchange in terms of fellowships there's greater talk about you know language learning uh, and the possibility of more of that happening so i think that there is a much more serious approach towards engaging taiwan uh, that's taking place that sort of you know the conversation around that is taking place in india uh, but there is uh, uh, you know caution with regard to what uh, you know what sort of utterances you make in the public domain particularly at uh, international forums uh, and how you sort of approach that issue uh, and an example of this is that last year uh, india was the chair of the who Uh, but we didn't see anything specific uh, with regard to taiwan we didn't see sort of any efforts to ruffle any feathers and things like that um, so i think that there is officially caution but still there is greater engagement yet in the public discourse in india i mean if you just observe the media what you will see is that there is tremendous support for taiwan um, i mean every year for the last couple of years we've seen uh, on national day in taiwan we've seen posters being put up in delhi uh, you know congratulating taiwan and supporting taiwan uh we've seen far more sort of engagement from even indian politicians from the ruling uh, bjp uh who congratulated taiwan uh, and who sort of engaged with politicians hmm. from taiwan so i think that you've seen a little bit more sort of uh, adventurism if i could put it that way but uh, it's still extremely cautious uh, and i think that caution will remain um the last sort of thing point that i wanted to make on this is that uh, um i think this is still a conversation that's brewing in india um there is uh, a much more uh, you know there is a much more serious discussion to have about uh, what india's uh, opportunities and you know what are the costs and opportunities of changes in status quo along taiwan strait and how does that impact india's interests uh, given how the situation there could unfold and i think that's the, that's that's a conversation that the indian system and the indian strategic affairs community and the indian government needs to have with much more seriousness because we are moving into much more uh, tricky times uh, right. particularly not just with regard to what the pla is doing but also with regard to the domestic dynamic in taiwan uh, in terms of the discourse around you know the current the current administration and the possibility of the next election leading to something else right. so i think we need to have that conversation much more seriously in india no thanks manoj that was a that was a really uh, fascinating overview uh, you know very nuanced uh, you actually don't see a lot uh, at least uh, here in washington uh, and i think even elsewhere in asia on the uh, the perspective that new delhi has towards the taiwan question so thanks for that great overview um before we wrap up today uh, i just wanted to generally sort of get your reflections on 
um, you know, the, the state of uh, China watching in India. Uh, I know I know it's a small community. And, uh, you know, as you highlighted at the beginning of our discussion today, uh, interest in China has gone up quite a bit in India for uh, for reasons we've already discussed. Um, but I just want to get a sense of, you know, uh, how you see this, uh, you know, this community in India developing, um, what level of expertise you think is uh, is actually informing Indian policy in practice um, and where uh, where India could do better uh, in terms of uh, understanding China. Uh, you know, there is there's, I think, a, a, a divide on both sides in terms of China's understanding of India and India's understanding of China. Uh, but, you know, my sense is that the community in India that seeks to understand China uh, is in many ways a lot more developed. Um, but, uh, you know, I'd love to get uh, your your thoughts on this. Yeah, I think I'd, I'd sort of begin with, uh, you know, just media. Uh, and my sense is that we need much more of Indian media focused on covering China from China. Um, and we've had very little of that. There is a handful of journalists, even fewer than a handful of journalists, uh, Indian journalists who are in China. So a lot of Indian discourse on China is informed by Western reporting. Um, or, you know, uh, you know, actually, yeah, Western reporting, it's not even necessarily Chinese media reporting, which is another grouse that I have with our media, is that we don't necessarily look at primary sources, we don't necessarily look at how, you know, how the Chinese uh, administration, how the Communist Party, uh, how the system is sort of engaging with itself and talking to itself. Uh, a lot of this is uh, second-hand, third-hand data that we're using, uh, and I think that's uh, flawed. So that, but that's, that, that's the media level, uh, and that's the public discourse level. Um, a lot of what is what you hear is a repetition of uh, uh, established sort of stereotypes and lines that you may hold. Um, the second thing is in terms of the strategic press community, and I think here, uh, I mean, I might be biased in saying this, but there's a there's a there's an expansion in capacity that you can see over the last four or five years. Um, there's there's far more there are many more people who are much more seriously engaged in uh, trying to understand different that different dimensions of uh, you know what's happening in China, what's happening with the PLA uh, and all of that. And I think that's uh, a positive because it's much more information uh, that's going into the system to think and to deliberate in terms of how to approach Beijing. So to me, that the strategic affairs community discourse has become much more robust than it was in the last four or five years. And I see this becoming much more robust down the road. Um, given the sort of given the sort of adversarial nature of the relationship that we are seeing developing, at the same time there is actually quite an interest uh, to develop uh, you know the other sort of dimensions of this relationship because it need not just be your neighbors you're going to coexist with each other one way or the other it need not just be an adversarial relationship so there is sufficient groundwork uh, that is being laid through in different forums to try and engage much more deeply on issues like, say, urbanization, pollution, the environment, and things like that. Um, and I think we've got the groundwork there. It's just the challenge is that, you know, uh, the sort of fundamental aspects of the relationship are out of whack at the moment. Uh, so I think that's also a sign that uh, should stay. So the moment things fall into place, you can see actually things uh, get better. At the same time, there is clearly an economic relationship, which is important, which is significant. Uh, and we've seen that grow, right? Today we, our trade today this year will hit $100 billion, mm -hmm. uh, which is the highest it has ever. So you can see that there is tremendous economic opportunity on both ends. Uh, and again, it, it depends on how the sort of boundary issue in that plays out. The last thing that I would say is uh, what we're seeing is that, uh, and this is a positive sign again, is that you're seeing government engage far more with uh, folks from outside government, the MEA, the Indian External Affairs Ministry, uh, uh, picks up formally picks up consultants uh, 
it's formally engaging with uh, farmer groups. If you look at the MEA's outreach to different think tanks in its budget, uh, it's having it's it's funding far more discussion, far more conversation uh, around issues that are important, particularly around China. So there is an effort to sort of engage with the think tank ecosystem, which is still very very new in India. Uh, but you're seeing that there's a far greater effort to do that. So to me, those signs are sort of positive. Um, the one thing that I wish that we did more of uh, is that we looked far more deeply at primary sources because uh, um, there's a lot of information that Beijing puts out uh, which we don't look at. Um, and our effort at Takshashila has been to try and do more of that. Right. Yeah. Open source, uh, open source analysis uh, in in uh, in Chinese, I think, is also necessary uh, here in the United States. Uh, there's been a big call to, uh, you know, facilitate uh, greater, at least, government-backed funding of uh, of uh, open source um, resources more generally. Uh, as for instance, the United States did during uh, the Cold War um, with uh, with the Soviet Union. Um, but Manoj, I really want to welcome you, um, or, or thank you rather, for joining me uh, on on the show today. Uh, really, really benefited from listening to your insights. Uh, once again, for our listeners, um, Manoj writes the excellent Eye on China newsletter. Uh, I'd highly recommend it if you're interested in keeping up on the China-India relationship and China's activities in South Asia more generally. Uh, but Manoj, uh, once again, thank you for joining me, and I uh, hope to have you back on soon. Thanks. Thanks so much, Anthony. Pleasure. For listeners, if you uh, liked what you heard on the podcast and you'd like to keep up with future episodes, make sure you subscribe. You can do that on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere you really get your shows. We're there. And secondly, if you've been subscribed for a while but you haven't yet left us a review, please do so. It really helps get the word out there about the show, and we do appreciate it. Thanks a lot for listening, and I'll be back soon with more.